And they, the disciples of Jesus, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they all were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by the demon, by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and he and kneeling said to him, If you will make me clean, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priests and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Morning. It's great to see you. I'm always so pumped on Sunday morning. I think there's something special that happens when the people of God come together, sing the gospel over one another, sit under the teaching of God. It's just a, it's a great time. And so I'm, I'm glad you guys are all here. Um, as Pastor Josh mentioned, we are going to continue our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Um, in this series, we call it The King and the Cross, right? And, uh, and in this series, we will see that Jesus is our king. He is this, the one messianic uh, figure that the whole Old Testament is looking forward to, the one that they're anticipating. He's bringing the kingdom of God. And we'll also see what it looks like to be followers of this king. 
That's kind of the whole thrust of this sermon series. And so if we're resetting the stage from where we've been so far in chapter one, we'll see that Jesus was baptized. The heavens were torn open. God the Father pronounces this kingly anointing over God the Son as God the Spirit descends upon him and empowers him for ministry. And then we see that as Jesus leaves this baptism, empowered by the Spirit, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, right? And this is kind of uh, redoing what Adam and Israel both did wrong. In the same way that Adam fell to the deception of the serpent and the way that Israel kind of didn't follow God well in their 40 years of wandering, Jesus does this perfectly. He's victorious. He defeats Satan in this temptation. And then next we see that Jesus begins his ministry. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand and that people are to repent and believe the good news. And then we actually see this repentance and belief uh, concretely fleshed out and modeled in the life of Jesus' first disciples. We talked about that last week, right? They, they dropped everything. They responded to the call. They followed Jesus and partnered with him in this mission. And so far, everything in this narrative is going really well for Jesus, right? Everything's going smoothly, but we're still early into the text. We're in chapter one. And what we'll see today is that when Jesus condescended to this earth, he didn't enter into neutral territory. When Jesus entered into the world, he came into hostile territory. He came in behind enemy lines into enemy-occupied territory. And I love uh, Fleming Rutledge. She's this brilliant uh, theological thinker. Um, she describes Christ's first advent this way. She says, the Christ event is the invasion of this world by another who is retaking for himself the world he created, right? And that's what we see in Mark. Jesus is entering into enemy-occupied territory, entrenched in sin, right? In this world, entrenched in sin, and he's actively pushing back the forces of darkness and evil in our world. And he does this in the lives of individuals, and he's also going to do this in the world at large. And I feel like this is especially relevant for all of us because there isn't a single person in this room who hasn't been touched by sin, right? Who hasn't been affected by sin in our world. There isn't somebody, maybe it's our own sin, maybe it's the sin of others, maybe it's uh, the causes of sin like disease and illness and death and natural disasters. But, but everyone in here has in some way been affected by sin in our world. And what we see today is that in Christ, we don't have to be victims of the brokenness in our world. Today we see a king whose authority over the enemy in this world uh, is, is absolute and how he empowers us to live on this mission with him. And so the bulk of this sermon this morning is going to be unpacking three domains in which Jesus has authority, right? We're going to spend the most of our time looking at that. And then the few closing minutes, we're going to look at three different responses that we can have to that authority. We're going to see three domains and then three responses. And the first domain which Jesus exercises his authority is in the spiritual realm, right? That's the first truth that we see emerge out of this text is that Jesus's authority drives out Satan and evil, Jesus' authority drives out Satan and evil. And this, this could not be made more clear than in verses 21 through 28, right? In this passage, Jesus and his disciples, they're coming into Capernaum. They're leaving Galilee. They probably got there on Friday. Um, as the story is starting, it's Saturday morning. Um, the Sabbath back then started in the evening. And so, you know, Friday night, the Sabbath starts. Um, all, all days start in the evening. And then in the morning, they're in the synagogue and Jesus is teaching 
And so now Jesus and his four disciples, they're in Capernaum, they're on the Sabbath, they go into the synagogue, and uh, when they get to the synagogue, Jesus actually begins to teach, and everyone's mind is blown, right? They're beside themselves with his teaching because he's not teaching like any other rabbi. He's not teaching, he's not quoting rabbis, he's not quoting the popular scribes of his time. He's opening up the scripture, and he's teaching as only God incarnate can. And I have to imagine that he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's probably telling those people to repent and believe, as he said in Mark 1, 14 and 15. And then in the middle of this sermon, this demonized man interrupts Jesus and shouts out in verse 24. I have to imagine it sounded like this, what have you to do with us? And I don't know if it really sounded like that, but, but it's like, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Right? He's interrupting the sermon. And this us is interesting because it's not actually referring to like multiple, you know, fallen spirits in this one person. It's, it's called an inclusive us. It's referring to all of the, the powers of darkness, Satan and all of evil. Uh, and, and he's saying, what do you have to do with us? And, and it's almost like this spirit is sort of flexing on Jesus, right? He, he, he's basically uh, uh, trying to pick a fight. And what's really interesting too is that this demon refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God, and so uh, this is just kind of a caveat as we're going through Mark. Many people are going to refer to Jesus as teacher, rabbi, Lord. But anytime a demon, somebody who's kind of in tune to this kind of spiritual realm, refers to Jesus as always as God. And it's kind of interesting because in this first verse here that we see, it's actually uh, a, a, like a, a microcosm of what Christians believe about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is fully human. And he's also the, fully one of, the, the holy one of God. He's fully God. And so in this one person, we have two complete natures, fully God and fully man, right? And so after the demon gives this kind of brief theology lesson, Jesus rebukes the demon. He commands him to be silenced. Jesus isn't ready for his true identity to be revealed yet. And so he exercises this demon out of the man, and the crowd goes nuts, right? They're cheering. They're like, oh, my gosh. The, the text says that they're astonished. Right? And, and, and they basically rushed out to tell everyone that what they had seen. And, and they said that the news spread everywhere throughout the land. And so what we see here in this first story is, is that Jesus is preaching an authoritative sermon. And he vindicated that sermon, that authority, through a display of miraculous power. Right? In this moment, Jesus displays his absolute power over the spiritual realm. And I know in our current culture, we've all been affected by rationalist, kind of materialist thinking, right? And there's a tendency, this kind of knee-jerk reaction in us to think, oh, yeah, right. Like, I don't know if that actually happened. Like, is there really like a, like a spiritual world, right? Or, or maybe we'll think like, oh, this guy wasn't actually like demonized. He, he was sick. He had, he had poor mental health. Jesus was a great counselor. Uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus just helped him to find some good mental clarity, Right? But that's not what this text is saying. Uh, Charles Taylor, he wrote this crazy long book about secularism. Um, and basically what he says is that in our culture, we have all given way to the process of what he calls immunization. And immunization is this subtle process by which our world, uh, hence the, the realm of significance, is enclosed within the material universe and the natural world. Right, Kind of the default setting of the West is that we believe in the imminent and nothing outside of the imminent domain can be real, like angels or demons or God or the Son of God. Our tendency is to be uncomfortable with a text like this uh, and, and to try to figure out how to rationalize it, but the truth is our material world is not all that exists. That's the truth, 
right? Charles Taylor, in his book, he goes on to explain how all of our human experiences testify to that, right? It might not be empirically provable, but experientially, we all get this sense that there's something more. And we see a taste of this in our emotions, right? Uh, We cannot feel or taste or touch or see love, but someone who has been in love or somebody who loves someone or something can tell you that love is real, right? You, you, You can't hold the number one, right? If I said grab the number one, you cannot hold the number one. You can't touch it. You cannot taste it, but we know that the number one is real. It's a concept, but it doesn't exist in the material world, And the same is true about our created world. Scripture tells us that God created both material and immaterial beings. And so angels are real. Like demons are real. Satan is real. And most importantly, God is real. And and the incredible thing about being in Christ is that this reality, it doesn't have to freak you out right? I actually find comfort in it because it is real. And because as we see in this text, Jesus has complete authority over the spiritual realm. And so, and so as this narrative continues, we will see that Jesus actually defeats Satan and all of the forces of evil, right? On the cross, Jesus defeats Satan and all of the forces of evil. Satan has been definitively defeated. Satan, Satan was defeated when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And now he's just on this conquest to bring as many people down with him as he can, right? He's almost like this like villain in this outlaw movie, right? Who dueled the sheriff, he got defeated, but now he's like trying to pop off shots and just take as many people down as he can with them. That's kind of the operating mode of Satan right now. And a lot of times when we think about um, um, demonic encounters or, or, or spiritual attack, Hollywood has like filled our minds uh, to, with images of like the exorcist and people crawling on walls and stuff, all these things that are like crazy and outlandish. But, but what we actually see in scripture is that Satan or or demons, their favorite weapon, the way that they actually attack is typically through deception and accusation, right? In the Garden of uh, Eden, Satan attacked Adam and Eve through deception. And in Luke's account of the gospel, he actually goes into detail about Jesus' time being tempted, and Satan is accusing him. He's deceiving him. He's like, oh, your father doesn't really love you. Why would he send you on this painful mission? right? He's abandoned you. Don't do that. Just follow me. Bow to me. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the kingdom. That's actually what Satan means. It means accuser. And scripture tells us that Satan is the accuser of the church. And, and what Satan wants for you is to forget God's promises. And Satan wants you to forget who God is and what he has done for you. Satan wants to, he wants you to remember your sins and to forget the grace of God, right? He wants to bring stuff up that is already over. He wants to question your identity in Christ, right? Well, I'll know this verse, Romans 8, 1, says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And we'll say that to ourselves. And Satan is that little voice of the forces of the demons or forces of darkness or the voice that comes in and says, wait, are you in Christ though? Does that verse actually apply to you? He is the voice of the ones who's saying, who are you trying to fool? You can't read your Bible right now. You can't spend time in prayer right now. Not after what you did last night, right? Not after what you did last week, not after what you did last month or last year. You can't go before God. You're too sinful. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you must know Satan has no claim over you. 
He has no claim over you. And what he wants is to derail you by accusing you of sin that has already been forgiven or rehearsing the voices in your mind that call you to question who you are in Christ. Right? The enemy loves to use natural means in this, in this accusation loop. It might be the voice of your father telling you why you don't measure up. It might be the voice of your children saying that your strained relationship, it's all your fault. Or maybe it's the voice of a pastor or a boss who said something negative over you or a friend who was making a joke that stung a little too deeply, right? Maybe it's your own inner monologue telling you the reasons why you're a terrible person. Or maybe it's a sin struggle that keeps coming up, right? And instead of remembering that it's been covered, that it's been forgiven, we internalize it. And instead of saying, I did that and it's been forgiven, this voice says, you are that and you are irredeemable, Attack from the enemy most often looks like a rehearsal of lies about who you are, what you have done, about how who God is, and what he has done. And the truth is that Jesus defeated Satan. And, and, and he has complete authority over the enemy to drive the enemy out. And do you know how he did this? How did Jesus accomplish this victory? He did this when he died on the cross for sins. He took away Satan's weapon of accusation, right? Every time Satan says guilty, Jesus says innocent to those who have trusted in him. And I love what it says in uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 15 through 15. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, right? That's referring to the spiritual forces of evil in this world. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't the only thing hanging there. If you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, all of your sins, your trespasses, everything past, present, or future, right? Everything that you've ever thought, done, or loved that's contrary to the nature of God is dying there with him. It was nailed to the cross, hanging and dying with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I find that empowering, Right? That means when I find myself in this accusation loop from the enemy, I've been empowered by Jesus on his authority to stop, to declare that that loop is a lie and to proclaim the truth of the gospel over myself. I am not that sin. I am not that painful identity that I keep leaning into. All of my sins have been forgiven in Christ. And because of his authority, over the enemy, I have been empowered to forget the things that God has forgotten. Jesus' authority drives out Satan and evil, and it is in him that we find the freedom to live out who we are in Jesus. And that, that is the first truth. That's the first thing that we see emerging in this text, right? And as the story continues, we see Jesus has complete authority over this kind of spiritual realm, and next we're going to see that Jesus has complete authority over the physical domain, right? And especially in this text over infirmity. That's the, the second truth that we see in our text, that Jesus's authority can heal infirmity. Jesus's authority can heal infirmity. And so, so after Jesus removes this demon 
and he frees this man from, from this demonic oppression, people are freaking out, right? And, and this is like before the age of like social media and viral videos. And, and, and still the whole city, the text tells us, has heard about what has happened. And so Jesus, he takes off from the synagogue. He's going over to Peter's house uh, with Andrew and James and John. And when they get there, Peter's mother-in-law was ill with fever. And Jesus walks in and he heals her right? And this healing is such a sweet contrast to the exorcism, right? In the previous part of the story, because throughout Mark, we'll see Jesus, uh, when he deals with like these demonic forces, uh, physical touch is never involved. It's always just a, a, a verbal rebuke and the exorcism is completed. But in this story and throughout Mark, whenever we see that the ailment is physical, the healing is almost always accompanied by Jesus's physical touch, And in this account, he seizes the hand of Peter's mother-in-law. I have to imagine he just kind of gently lifts her up. And as he's lifting her up, the fever, it it vanishes, and she's restored to perfect health. She's fully vitalized. She begins to serve and start preparing the evening meal, right? She goes from, from being laid out in bed to up and cooking dinner in a matter of moments. And as she's cooking, the sun is starting to set, right? So the end of the Sabbath is almost upon us. And and I almost imagine this scene in the story like the starting of a race, right? Because uh, the Jewish tradition, uh, which wasn't actually a part of the Bible, we'll we'll talk more about the Sabbath laws in a couple weeks, but uh, the Jewish tradition said that people couldn't be healed on the Sabbath. And so everybody in this town has heard about this amazing thing that Jesus had done, and they're waiting for the Sabbath to be over. They're like a bunch of runners on the blocks, and as soon as that sun goes down, they rush Jesus, right? And, and what we see happening in this scene is, is the, the healing accounts that, that happen on an individual le- uh, level with the, the exorcism of the demonized man, and, and then the healing of Peter's mom, it, it, they, go, they go on uh, to a global level, Right? We see what happened on a personal level in, in verses 21 through 28, happening, and then uh, the healing in thir- 29 and 31, happening to everybody in the town. Verses 33 and 34 says, The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick, and with various diseases he cast out many demons. And so what he did in the lives of the individuals, he's now doing in the lives of the city. He's going global with his kingdom. God's kingdom is moving forward, and the enemy is being pushed back. And in this scene, we see that Jesus has complete authority over infirmity. We serve a king who is sovereign over all things, and sickness is one of them. And and in this account, he doesn't even have to say a word. He doesn't even speak. He just touches this woman's hand, and there's a transfer of power that heals her. This is a God who is worth praying to. Right? This is a God who can actually do something when we make a request, when we pray, because Jesus has the ability to heal us completely. And sometimes he does that through the common grace of medicine. Right? We go and see doctors and we receive medication, and sometimes the Lord heals us in that way. And sometimes it's miraculous. So sometimes it's in supernatural means, like, like we see in this text. I remember uh, a time when we were at our partner church in, in Grapevine. Um, one of the ways that I served over there was on the prayer team. And so after every gathering, we would invite people to come back and receive prayer. And people come back for anything. Sometimes you know, they had a hard week at work or, or, or they wanted to celebrate something with somebody else and thank God for it. But oftentimes, people would come back because they needed prayer for healing. 
And I remember this one time, uh, a gentleman, he came back and he asked for prayer. He said that he was uh, experiencing this really bad, like chronic vertigo. And so like every day he would wake up super nauseous, super dizzy. And it was, he, said, he said it was like negatively impacting every day of his life. Like he was kind of at his wit's end. And so he actually had gone to the doctor. He received medication. It didn't do anything. And so he was just in this place of hoping that it would go away on its own. And so then one Sunday, he comes back and he asks for prayer. And he was like kind of like ashamed. He said he felt like kind of weird about it because he was kind of this big like MMA guy, did like Brazilian jiu-jitsu and stuff. And he's like, I'm asking for people to pray about my dizziness, right? He thought it was like too small, but, but he ended up coming and asking for prayer. And so everybody in that kind of response team came around him and we prayed for him. And, and it wasn't like this miraculous, amazing thing, right? There were no fireworks. There was no fire from heaven. We all just kind of prayed and went our separate ways. And I honestly didn't even think about it again. Like it was just, yeah, kind of like another day in the office. And then he texts me like two nights later and he was like, dude, like I just have to let you know, like I woke up Monday and I was fine. I woke up Tuesday and I was fine. Like I haven't experienced another bout of vertigo since we asked for prayer. Like God had actually miraculously healed this man in the Sunday morning gathering. And so like as a church, we, we, we said, man, like God's, when God heals us, it's for his glory and we want to share that. And so we actually asked him to write a little piece about it to, to tell us. And I thought it was really interesting what he wrote. He said, uh, one Sunday as I was leaving the auditorium, the spirit led me to surrender the lie that any illness goes away on its own. I had to humble myself before God. I took my need to the response team who were waiting to take my need to our healer. The team prayed for healing and also for freedom from the stress and anxiety that have historically triggered these bouts of vertigo in me. Tuesday night, I realized that I hadn't experienced a single episode of vertigo since that prayer. It's a joy to remember that the Lord uses his people in our suffering to remind us who he is. And I'll tell you, church, there is like there are times that we will pray for things and nothing happens, but God is pleased when we come together as a church and we pray for things together because he is glorified amongst the body of people. And so there are things that God is willing to do and ready to do that he will not do until you come before him in prayer as community. And, and, and what I love about this last line that he said, he said uh, that, that it reminded him of who Jesus was, right? He is our healer. And this is what we are being reminded of here in this text. Jesus is our healer who has complete authority over infirmity, right? We can come to Jesus in prayer and ask him for healing, knowing it's not a waste of time because he actually has the power to heal. And I know sometimes it doesn't always work that way, right? I know God doesn't always heal us when we ask him to, and sometimes that's really challenging, and sometimes that's really difficult and confusing. And, and honestly, one of the things I find most encouraging about this encounter that we see with Peter's mother-in-law is how she's being healed. In this moment, we see a God who is present with us. He's involved in the sickness. We have this picture of Jesus grabbing her hand, right? He's, he's connected to her. He's not distant. He's not far off. It's personal. Our God is not a disconnected God. He is connected to her and he is with her in the infirmity. And I know that there are people in the room right now praying for healing. Keep doing that. Do it in community. Bring that to the needs of the elders and the people in your path groups. Keep doing it. But know that God is our healer who is with us in the suffering. I love uh, what John Calvin says about this, uh, especially because Calvin was a very sickly person. Uh, he, he suffered from uh, digestive issues. He had migraines, hemorrhages. Uh, he had tuberculosis, chronic asthma, kidney stones, fevers. I mean, like there's this full gamut of things that, was, uh, that were afflicting Calvin. 
Um, but when Calvin is talking about suffering, he is so firmly rooted in the nature and character of who God is, that, that God is a good God who wants good for his people, that he is empowered to endure the suffering because he is sovereign over it, because God is sovereign over it. He says, adversity will have its bitterness and sting us. When afflicted with disease, we shall groan and be disquieted and long for health. Pressed with poverty, we shall feel the stings of anxiety and sadness. Feel the pain of ignominy, contempt, and injury, and pay the tears due to the nature at, at the death of our friends. But our conclusion will always be, the Lord so willed it. Therefore, let us follow his will. Nay, amid the pungency of grief, among the groans and tears, this thought will necessarily suggest itself and incline us cheerfully to endure the things for which we are so afflicted. Calvin is like, man, I know that God is ruling sovereignly over this earth, and I know that he is perfect, and I know that his will for me is good, and so even though I don't understand it while I'm in this moment of suffering, I can rest in the fact that he has willed it, and if he has willed it, there is good in it. Right? We're so tempted to often take the opposite approach, saying, God, if you're sovereign over everything, why don't you just give me what I want? Why don't you just do this for me? Right? And Calvin had the exact opposite approach. He said, I can endure cheerfully this affliction because I know God is sovereign over it. And in this section of our text, we see that Jesus has the authority to heal infirmity. And we can be empowered in that, to ask prayerfully with expectation for our healing and to endure cheerfully in the affliction, knowing that one day, all sickness, all hurt, and all pain will be gone forever as Jesus' kingdom is finally and fully realized on this earth. That is our hope. Jesus has authority over Satan and authority over infirmity. That is the second truth that emerges in this text. The last domain that we see Jesus exercising authority is over our eternity. Jesus' authority can make us clean. That's the, the third truth that we see in this text, that Jesus' authority can make us clean. And as the story goes on, Jesus is, is up late, right? He's up late all night kind of healing people. He gets up super early in the morning. And the next uh, thing that we see him do, he, he's praying, right? He goes out to a desolate place to pray. And in Mark's gospel, we actually see Jesus do this three times. He does it here, he does it in Mark 6, and then again in Mark 14 in Gethsemane. But the way Mark is telling us about it here, he wants us to understand that this is an actual part of Jesus's ministry. He does this often. We, the text mentions a lot of times Jesus going into desolate places to pray, or to, to be, and we're to assume that while he's there, he's probably praying. And, and uh, I think this is just like a, a freebie, right? This isn't a part of like the actual... Uh, point here, um, but it is a take home, right? Like that if we want to be good followers, not good followers, if we want to follow Jesus well with intimacy and, and deep connection, and Jesus is God incarnate, God the Son who condescended to this earth, who exists in perfect relationship with the other members of the Trinity, and he took time to pray, like we should probably take time to pray, right? Jesus was up all night working hard. He got up super early because Jesus prioritizes prayer over sleep and maybe we should too, I'm just saying. Uh, but I'll get off that soapbox. Um, so, so Jesus is out there praying, and his disciples, uh, they run up on him. And they're like, Jesus, Jesus, man, where have you been? Like, 
Like, they're loving you out there. You're killing it. Let's get back there. This kingdom mission should be easy. You're like the most popular guy in town. But Jesus had other priorities, right? He had more gospel to proclaim. And so he goes and he tells them no. And they go head off to this little rural town called Galilee. And when Jesus gets to Galilee, he's approached by a leprous man. And we can assume that in this moment that they're on this outskirts of town, right? Galilee was already a pretty rural and like uninhabited town. Capernaum was a bigger city. There are different words in the text used to describe these places. Um, And so in this little rural, less populated town, they're probably on the fringes at the moment away from people because this leprous man was considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And his leprosy was contagious and incurable. And so, so people, they didn't want to be around a leper. And, and part of Jewish law actually forbade lepers from coming into the temple and being a part of the community and worshiping. They were not supposed to go into town. They were not supposed to see their families. Uh, and, and worst of all, they weren't allowed to worship. Right? This would often result in the lepers kind of forming this kind of outcast community on the fringes of town. They were instructed to wear torn clothes and have disheveled hair. Like everything about a leper should make a person say, I don't want to be around that person. That, that's, that's how they were in this culture. And if they passed by a person or if they were in a town, they actually had to yell, like, unclean, unclean. They had to cover their mouth when they did it. They had to let everybody know that they were unclean. As a leper, your identity, who you are at the core is unclean. A leper was not not seen as a a diseased person. A leper was seen as a a dirty person. The lowest of the lows. They were unclean. And and what Jesus does in this scene is incredible because this man approaches him, which is already this like huge social taboo. And then he falls to his face and in verse 40, he says, if you will you can make me clean. And now notice this man doesn't say, if you will, you can heal me. He says, you can make me clean. You can take my uncleanliness away. And Jesus looks at the man and he touches him and he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Right? That's what the text says and it goes on to describe his new condition. And you look at verse 42 and listen to how Mark describes this man's new condition. It does not say, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was healed. Right? It says, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. He was made clean. This is his new condition. Jesus has the authority to make us clean. And so then Jesus instructs him to to keep his mouth shut, not to tell anybody about what happened. He needs to go into Jerusalem to offer the appropriate sacrifice. So he's in Galilee. He needs to take this trip all the way to the big city and and offer the appropriate sacrifice for his healing. The man doesn't listen at all. He goes off blabbing. We don't even know where he went. Um, And then Jesus goes back into a desolate place. And, And the whole point of this section is that Jesus's kingly authority can make us clean. But if we want to be clean, we need to realize that we're the leper. We are dirty. And when we stand before a perfect and holy and pure God, our sin has left us unclean and disconnected from him. And in the same way that the leper could not enter into the temple to worship, our sins put a barrier between us and God, leaving us unable to be in right relationship with him. We are unable to rightly worship. We are the leper. We are unclean. 
I know uh, in our family, uh, we do this thing called desserts and devos. And so uh, unabashedly, we're trying to brainwash our kids with the Bible. <laughs> and so every night after dinner, we have dessert. And I'm trying to do this like, you know, positive mental association thing where we go, oh yeah, dessert, it's sweet to our tummies and God's word is sweet to our hearts. And so we do them together and hopefully they'll grow up to learn to love the word. I don't know if it'll work, but, but what we do is we read through Mark. We just read through Mark over and over and over and again. Those girls have probably read through or heard Mark, you know, 20 some times. And whenever we read it, we take a couple minutes to talk about it. And when we talk about this story, one of the things that we'll say or, or that we'll talk about is, is uncleanliness. I'll be like, hey girls, like when you touch dirt, what does that do? And they're like, oh, it makes my hands dirty, right? I said, did you know that like when we sin, it actually makes our hearts dirty? Sin makes our hearts unclean. And then I'll say, but what do you do for your hands? And they're like, oh, I can just wash my hands. And I'm like, that's right but how do you clean your heart? And then they look at me like I'm crazy, like, Dad, I can't clean my heart. It's inside of me. I can't wash my heart. And I'm like, exactly. We cannot clean our own hearts, and there's nothing that we can do or will be able to do to make our hearts clean. There's no action. There's no right choice to cancel out a wrong choice, right? There's nothing that we can do to clean our own hearts, and then I'll tell them, I'll say, hey, girls, you know what's really sad about that? They're like, what? And I'm like, when our hearts are dirty, we can't be with God. And they're like, but dad, I want to be with God. And I'm like, I know. It's the amazing thing is that God wants to be with us too. And so he sent his son and Jesus can make our hearts clean. And then this light goes off and it's like, they actually pretend to like have a vacuum. They go, like they're sucking dirtiness out of their heart, you know? But, but, but that's the truth, Right? Like, only God has the authority to make unclean clean. We'll see him do this again in, in Mark chapter 7 with the Syrophoenician woman and cleanliness laws. And, and he does this by taking our place. Jesus takes our uncleanliness, our sin, and he puts it in himself. And then he took his righteousness and he gives it to us. His cleanliness, his perfection, he gave it to us. He took the penalty that we deserve for our sins when he died on the cross. And Jesus makes our heart clean by substitution. Jesus in my place. And, and this is actually what we see happening with the leper, right? Jesus takes the leper's place. Jesus reaches down and he touches this man. He takes the leprosy upon himself. He puts that uncleanliness on him. And then this leprous man, who, who for the past who knows how long, 20, 30, 40, however many years, has lived on the outskirts of town, disconnected from people, disconnected from God, disconnected from relationships, Jesus says, go to Jerusalem. Go present yourself to the priest. Go be with people. Go be in culture. Go see your friends. Go see your family. Go to the place that I'm gonna be going. Go, go to my place. And where does Jesus go? He goes to a desolate place. He goes to the place of the leper. Jesus takes our place he does the same thing for all of us when we take the posture of the leper, when we recognize the fact that we are unclean and we humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask for his forgiveness, he makes us clean. And so in this text, we, we talked about how Jesus has the authority to drive out Satan and the forces of evil. Jesus' authority can heal infirmity and Jesus has authority to make us clean, right? He is our king who has absolute power over every aspect of life. And so now we have to ask, what should my response be? How do I respond to this incredible truth? And the first thing, the first way to respond is for anybody who, who, who hasn't already 
trusted in Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, your response should be the response of the leper. Humble yourself before him. Confess your sins. Ask him to make your heart clean so that you can enter into his kingdom. Right? And, and this is something like Josh, Pastor Josh said, we're passionate about this. You can do this right now at your, at your chair. You can talk to me after the gathering. You can talk to Pastor Josh, any one of our lead shepherds. You can check that box. We would love to have that conversation with you. But if you haven't actually trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, do that now. But if you have trusted in Jesus, we actually see three responses in this text that can help us figure out how we should respond to Jesus' authority. And the first way that you can respond is being a person who responds to Jesus' authority by looking for the perks. This is what we see the crowds doing, right? They're, they're uh, here, they hear about Jesus' amazing power, they hear about his healings, and they just rush him. They all want a healing from him, and, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But last week, we talked about this idea of wanting the kingdom without the king, right? And they wanted the benefits but they didn't want to partner with Jesus in his mission. And, and as Jesus' mission progresses through Mark, we'll see the crowds that follow him, they grow smaller, and they grow smaller, and they grow smaller. Jesus' mission was not primarily a healing mission. Yes, it is uh, uh, absolutely true that Jesus, in his grace and mercy, provides healing, and it is absolutely true that healing is a part of God's kingdom, but his mission, what his purpose for being here was, was not to bring healing, but to bring the kingdom of God, and he told us in 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15, that he would do that by preaching the gospel and ultimately dying on the cross for sins. And so these people who were coming to Jesus for the perks, they actually got in the way of Jesus' ministry, Right? The disciples were like, man, you're killing it. Let's go back there. And Jesus is like, I can't, man. Everyone wants to be healed and no one wants to hear the gospel. We need to go to Galilee. Right? He said, I came not to, to heal but to preach. And so the crowds got in the way of Jesus' ministry when they were seeking the perks. And we're going to get in the way of Jesus' ministry if we're doing the same thing. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't ask Jesus for healings. Right? We talked about this. Jesus heals us, and he loves to do so, but we don't want to make the healing our chief end. We want to seek the healer and ask for the healing. We don't want to do it the other way around. Um, next, we can respond to Jesus's authority by looking for a platform, right? Trying to be popular. This is what the disciples did. You know, in that moment where they're saying, Jesus, you're killing it. Let's go back there. This kingdom work is going to be easy, they, they were showing their cards that they were looking for this status, this popularity. And the disciples, we see this all throughout Mark as well, that they kind of miss it. They're kind of thinking about the easy way to achieve things, looking for popularity. And for some of us in our circles, I know this is especially prevalent for Monica and I coming from Texas, that, that following Jesus, right, obeying the requirements, doing the things well, it can actually give us a platform. It can make our peer group think more highly of us, right? It can make us popular. But we'll see... Uh, as Mark unfolds, that following Jesus will not make you popular. Following Jesus will be a life of self-denial and it will be a life of suffering. And if you're following Jesus for a platform or for popularity, you might actually have to circle back to the posture of the leper, right? You might not actually be following Jesus. So we don't follow Jesus for the popularity. But there is one person in this whole story who, who gets it. She understands what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and it's Peter's mother-in-law, right? Peter's wife's mom, she actually is an example of how someone should respond to Jesus's authority. And the third way that we respond to Jesus's authority is to serve others as Jesus did. 
right? Peter's mother-in-law was ill. She encounters Jesus' authority. Her infirmity is immediately healed. And how does she respond? Well, she starts to serve. And this word serve, it comes from this Greek term, uh, diakoneo. Um, it's where we get the term deacon from. Mark uses this word really intentionally in his text, right? There's only four times that this word's actually used. Once is when the, the, the angels are ministering to Jesus after his temptation. Two times we get these examples of women, one here and one in uh, Mark 15, uh, uh, of women who serve well, who get what it means to be followers of Jesus. And then the only other time that it's mentioned is in Mark 10.45. And most people who've studied Mark will say, Mark 10, 45, this is the most important verse of the entire gospel. It explains Jesus' mission and how he's going to accomplish it. And what Mark 10, 45 says, it says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This, this insertion of the word to serve here in this story is foreshadowing. It's supposed to link us literarily to Jesus's mission. And so that when we're reading Mark 10, 45, we're like, oh yeah, I remember I saw that word before. It was the woman. She's the example of the disciple. And she's the one who has encountered Jesus's authority and she doesn't look to take advantage of it. She doesn't think, how can I get more from this? How can I get, you know, to have the kingdom without the king? She doesn't look to be made more popular. She says, because Jesus has done for me I want to do for others. Because he freely gave, I want to freely serve. And that's the posture that we want to take when we encounter Jesus' authority over the forces of evil in our lives, when we encounter Jesus' authority over the infirmity of our life, when Jesus' authority has made us clean, we don't want to respond in a selfish way. We want to respond as Jesus does in a self-giving way. And so we are empowered to live as servants of Jesus and ambassadors of his kingdom in our world. And so what we see in this text is that Jesus' authority drives out Satan and the forces of evil. Jesus' authority can heal our infirmity. Jesus' authority can make us clean. And our right response is to be a servant as Jesus was. And so to that end, I will pray, and John will come and lead us in worship as we head out of here. Father, we are thankful to you. We're thankful that you're a good God who loves us. Uh, we're thankful that you give us the privilege of gathering together as a church and um, just being immersed in your word. Uh, we pray that we would be people uh, like, the, like the, the good soil who hear the word and produce, you know, hundredfold, God. Um, let us not go out here, forget what we've heard, but let us serve you well. Uh, we worship you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.